The following is a presentation of the Omega Institute for Holistic Studies, awakening the best in the human spirit. I've got a wonderful confession to make. Um, a while back, I bought this shirt, which I like the color, and um, makes me feel good. So the first time I put it on, I went to an Italian restaurant. And as I was eating my salad, because I have a belly now, so everything is more on a horizontal and a vertical, uh, a big glob of uh, oil and vinegar went onto the shirt. And I've washed it in everything. All those things that say they will, didn't. So I still had this stain here. So each time I carry the shirt, because I like it, and I put it on, I say, no, I can't wear that, it's got a stain. So what I've done is I put my name tag over the stain. Tom was introducing me, I thought about a situation a little while back, past year, or a year ago, when I was invited to do a benefit for a, um, a sort of a graduate school, um, kind of a humanist graduate school. So um, the people, the woman in charge called me and she said, what would you like to speak about? It was going to be a dinner benefit in San Francisco. What would you like to speak about? So I said, well, I said, I've just completed a book on aging, or I'm just completing a book on aging. Why don't I speak about that? She said, oh, no. She says, nobody's going to come to a dinner benefit to hear about aging. <laughs> okay. She says, what else could you speak about? I said, well, I work a lot with the dying. <laughs> <laughs> That was out of the question, so I said, well, I've done some books on compassion. I work a lot with suffering. <laughs> so she decided to title the lecture, uh, Mining the, Mining the Jewels? Mining the Riches of Life. Mining the Riches of Life. And I spoke about death, suffering, and aging, you see. <laughs> And one woman got up and she said, she was a little drunk, and she said, you seem very negative. <laughs> and I was having a great time, you see, so. <laughs> but now and then I do feel a little bit like a Charles Adams cartoon. You know the cartoon where you go to the movie, you see the audience of the movie theater and they're looking at the screen and everybody looks absolutely horrified and one person is smiling. <laughs> because something has happened to consciousness which makes what was night day and what was day night, which makes what was fire water and what was water fire. And that's a very profound shift, and it's a shift you all are here because you are appreciating it in yourselves, but yet you don't know quite what to do about it. Neither do I. I want to reassure you. And in fact, um, in most of these lectures, since there are enough of you new that I can repeat things, at most of these lectures I introduce myself as Ram Das, which means servant of God, which is a devotional path through to freedom through service, basically, and love. And then I say, but I also use RAM as an acronym. I mean, I've got RAM DAS or RAM DAS, which is computer. I'm in the computer section in that bookstore. <laughs> RAM DAS, RAM DAS, RAM DAS. And to my father, I was rum-dum. 
But I like ROM as an acronym for rent a mouth. <laughs> rent a mouth. Because basically, you have rented my mouth to say to you something. And when I think about what the something is, I think, whatever it is, you want me to say to you things that it turns out you already know. And the way I know that is because if I say to you something that is some far out gem of wisdom I feel I have now gotten the essence of that I want to share with you, and I say it to you, and I look around and people are going like this. <laughs> now how do you know that? And if you already knew it, what do you need me to tell you about it for? I mean, is this a sort of a, like the appendix, kind of an anachronism left over from some other time? What I see is that what we need to do, what we seem to do, want to do, and that includes me, is to get together to hear it over and over again, to share our understanding so it deepens our faith in what's actually happening to us. Because a lot of the times when we're experiencing changes in our being, the language that we try to fit it into is the cultural language that doesn't stretch quite that way. It doesn't stretch quite that way. So we come together to say to each other the old stories, to say over and over again what we know to be true, understanding that the first truth we know is that truth is a lie, or that there are, that reality is relative. I'll tell you, I've been, um, since 1961, when I first took mushrooms, um, under the kind guidance of Tim Leary. Um, I have been, um, my whole life has been turned around and I have been pursuing some path, it appears like a path, I experience as a path, of transformation of consciousness, of awareness, of something, of who I am. Because I saw in that first experience I wasn't who I thought I was. I wasn't who everybody else thought I was. I wasn't who everybody else, I wasn't even one of the people everybody else thought they were. <laughs> See, because when I was born, I, like you, went into somebody training. See, you were trained to become somebody. So you have a name, you have an identity. Oh, Doris, she's the one who. You get to develop a role. You go into somebody training, and I, you go into somebody training because you are surrounded by trainers, all of whom think they are somebody. Your parents definitely thought they were real. <laughs> Didn't they? Mine did. For the most part, they thought they were real. And they trained me to think I was real. And I was galumphing along being real until the mushrooms. And at the moment of the mushrooms, I saw that I was only relatively real. That who I thought I was was only relatively real, and who I turned out to be was much more interesting than who I had thought I was, which was an incredible surprise, since I thought I was going to spend my life being who I thought I was. Is this too weird? Or you hear we're on play, let's see. <laughs> So once I saw that I wasn't who I thought I was, and who I was was much better, but I couldn't stay there. I kept coming back into who I thought I was. So I started to look around for how to get into who I really am and stay here. That turned out to be the game. I knew how to get high by all kinds of means, but I didn't know how not to come down. And come down meant come back into my acculturation. Come back into my acculturated mind. Come back into my conceptual map of reality that was a set of, who knows, electrical, chemical, whatever, habits of thought or whatever, which I will call my ego, for want of a better term. So I would, um, 
override my ego through spiritual practices, and I would go into a plane of awareness where I was still a separate entity, but I was somehow, it was like coming up out of the smog before the Santa Ana winds. You know, it's like you go into a plane and you go up and suddenly there's sun again. You'd forgotten. And uh, that's what it felt like, coming back into sunlight. And uh, I tried all these methods, and I could get in, but I'd keep coming, drifting back down. No matter how long I tried to stay up there, I would re-enter. I seemed to have karma hanging around that required something, attention, some attention about my incarnation. So at some point in that process, I began to see my predicament was that I was trying to get high rather than trying to become free. And that high had a polarity in it of low, and that by holding onto the high, I was in effect pushing away the low. That is, I was pushing away the psychophysical identity that I was born into and that I had thought I was all that time. It's as if once I escaped from the prison cell of my own mind, I didn't want to go back into the cell at all, and I got an aversion to that cell. But by then, I was such a deep practitioner of Buddhism in which I, was, I could understand that the cause of suffering has to do with the clinging of mind and that the things you cling to are attractions or aversions and the thing I was clinging to was an aversion of me as a human being. I was busy being holy. So at that point I turned my efforts around and I looked at life and realized that I had to embrace my humanity into my being to be free. Is this still, are you with me still, or is it, huh? Because I can simplify it and make it funnier. <laughs> I think it's pretty funny anyway. But. The first thing I saw when I turned around and looked at life was another of the things that the Buddha had pointed up, but I just saw it without any help from my friends, was the immensity of the suffering. The immensity of the way in which forms were caught in some way that was causing suffering. And I realized that the suffering was so vast because everywhere I looked, I mean, just to not take off your blinders so you see the underclass in this culture. That you don't hide from the incredible suffering that exists among our family while we glump through life, paying it a certain kind of service but closing off because the suffering is unbearable. And so we defend, we protect, we do something. We do something to make it possible that we can live with the evening news. In, in uh, emergency rooms in hospitals, it's like uh, people develop professional warmth. That is, they're emotional in the service of their intellect. They go in and they're being kind to a patient and, oh, hello, dear, how are you? And it seems real. But in a way, they armor their hearts because the amount of suffering that they are surrounded with, they can't bear. Well, I would say to you that we're in this funny predicament, that the suffering that exists in the universe is immense, and that until you can be with that in some way or other inside your being and be open to it, you have no real freedom because you're busy avoiding something and your ability to free anybody else is quite limited. And when you see that what you'd like to do is take away suffering, you realize 
that you've got to become an instrument for the removal of that suffering and that means you have to be free of suffering and how can you look at that vastness of children dying and people with illnesses and old people being deserted and and kids on the street that are frightened and isolated and how can you look at all that and not close your heart because the people in the hospital wards that become professionally warm unfortunately it gets so strong that they go home and it hurts their whole life because they can't become unprofessionally warm just at the turn of a martini And I remembered a funny incident that I was that in India happened in India in 1971. I was uh, with my guru up in the foothills of the Himalayas with a group of people, and I had a Volkswagen microvan, uh, an old van, and we traveled around India in it. And <clears throat> at that time, there was a tremendous, tremendous, horrible suffering going on in Bangladesh, which was not. Maybe two, three hundred miles away, and um, people were dying. It was a terrible scene. You may remember. And I wanted to go there and take my van as an ambulance. And I went to my guru, and I was very agitated, and I wanted his blessing to do this. And he didn't have a word to say about whether I should or I shouldn't. And in fact, for other reasons, I didn't. But what he saw was my agitation, and he said to me, Ramdas, don't you see it's all perfect? And when he said that, it was like an obscenity. How could you hear of children dying and with the same consciousness say it's all perfect? It's taken me years to work with whatever that is. And that's part of this process. Because the process is realizing that you and I exist on more than one plane of awareness simultaneously. And that on one plane, suffering stinks. And on another plane, suffering is grace. And the question is, can you balance those two things in your consciousness? Because to the extent you can, you are then capable at looking at suffering and bearing the unbearable. Because who it was that found the unbearable has changed. So you have a choice when you find things unbearable. You can put up blindness so you don't see the things. In other words, deny the reality out there. Or you can change what's in here. And I would say that we are awakening or being forced to awaken or the conditions are ripe for awakening or whatever. And that has to do with recognizing that you exist both as an actor, as a doer, as a body, as a personality, as a storyline, and there is a part of our awareness that is like this absolutely clear present ah just what words you would use appreciating the form of the universe appreciating the play of God standing in awe of the miracle of it all whatever I mean that that wasn't scrunched out in you by the pain of the stuff like people say to me are you happy Ramdas and I look and I usually say, yes, I am happy, because usually I am. And then somebody will say to me, Ramdas, are you sad? Then I look, I realize, yeah, I am sad. Yeah. Well, how can you be happy and sad? And it's really interesting, because for years I had the model that in order to be happy, I couldn't be sad. And then I see that wisdom is that you are both happy and sad. That you don't have to push away some reality in order to get your rush. 
that you can be with the universe as it is. How could you live in the moment if you're so busy warding off the reality of what is? What is is that you're going to get old and, and broken down and you're going to die. No matter how good your health treatments are. Now we may have a genetic breakthrough and then you can just be miserable longer. So when I said to that group I could talk about suffering, death, and aging, to me, that was the grace that we were finally ready to bring those things out of the closet and to be with them. To be with them, to become what in Yiddish is called a mensch. It's somebody that can look and, and, and yeah, ah. Uh, that you can accept the fact that your heart is breaking all the time. You know, you say, oh, I, my heart was broken. Well, you notice in most cases it mended. And you went on to love again. What I think the two planes are, for me, which I call, by the way, ego and soul, for want of a better term. And I'm a Buddhist, you've got to realize that. Well, I'm actually a Hindu, Jew, Christian. <laughs> but you and I, let's, let's play with these two levels because you and I are meeting here. On one level, you are a woman, a man, you are you live in a certain place you have a certain ethnic identity you have a certain social identity you have certain roles you fulfill you're members of certain groups and that's who you are and you have come here to the double tree to our temple today to hang out with me to come and hear a lecture and I am a lecturer now there's another level at which you and I are fellow awareness. You and I are here just appreciating how the universe is, including our own storyline. In other words, we are souls meeting together to enjoy and appreciate and feel concern for and all the dance of incarnation. We are incarnates and we are also non-incarnates. <laughs> that is, the soul is not exclusively that which is in your body. In fact, it would be more real to say your body was in your soul because your body is actually the karmic... I'm, actually, how the hell do I know? Your body, <laughs> from where I'm sitting, in this reality that I'm playing in at this moment, your, and I'll give you the full treatment, I won't even dress it up for the West. Uh, the soul is carrying karma, the soul is the karma carrier, it's like a psychic DNA that's going through because it's still unique, it's still unique in itself, it's separate, it's still separate from, it's called the Jivatman in Hinduism as opposed to the Paramatman, which is the, the one, the God, the, of pure awareness. And so this uh, soul is carrying the karma and it works out that karma through dreaming, through manifesting in these various levels of reality of which one of them is this one. So your incarnation, your body, is the working out of the karma of your soul. Now if you were in your soul you would see your karma being worked out. Like I look at the spots on my hand and the veins and all of this, you know, this is a 65 year old hand. Now when I hear the porcelana ad, it says, they call these aging spots, I call them ugly. Imagine that. Look what it did to my hand. And I look at my hand, I say, they call these ugly, I call them aging spots. And, and I say, that's a beautiful hand. Yeah. I can do that because I'm not so invested in this hand. 
That's my soul awareness. When I went into training to become somebody like you did, I developed an ego structure. And I lived within that ego structure as people lived in Plato's cave or in Gurdjieff's prison cell. And then at some point I awakened just like you have awakened. You, can't, you don't have to have a big, magnetic, magnificent, traumatic awakening. You can just awaken because the culture is awakening. And you awaken into the fact that there is more than one reality. And you're starting to awaken out of your somebodyness and even your somebody specialness that you went into training after you trained to be somebody. Aren't you all somebody special? So here we are busy being somebody special and comparing ourselves to everybody else on every possible dimension. It's fascinating. You go out in the woods to look at trees. You don't say that pinion isn't as good as that redwood. You say, ah, a pinion, ah, a redwood. You see a gnarled tree and you say, look at the beauty of that. You see a straight tree, you say, look at the beauty of that. You come back with humans. You never do that. If, if she were only a little, if he could only, I like them best when they're, I'm disgusted with that. Instead of, look at that, an absolute essence slimy liar. <laughs> <laughs> See, what I'm talking about is cultivating and you and I meeting in a place of awareness where for a moment we can lay down our righteousness and just be together. We don't have to sit around judging God for a moment. We could just sit around and appreciate what's going on. Just listen to what's going on. I don't mean appreciate meaning, oh, it's wonderful. Forget that. I mean acknowledge, allow, be with what is happening in the universe. Because every time you armor yourself against any of it, in you, out of you, you're dying a little bit. You're being the living dead. You're, you're closing off a certain kind of pran or shakti or energy or freedom or something. Living, living truth. So you and I meet on two levels. You, like if you look at me on one level, you see a, a, a somebody dressed in a good-looking shirt. <laughs> Uh, a 65-year-old, uh, decaying, um, handsome man. <laughs> and then you shift channels once and you look at me now and you see a uh, speaker. You see a person who was a druggie. You see my social, psycho-social blub. You see neurosis. You see all of it. And you're looking at me and you say, there's a neurotic. There's a... And I am, just like you are. I mean, my neuroses are my style. I don't know what yours are for you. You need a few neuroses to make life interesting. You just don't have to take them as seriously as we do. My neuroses went from being these huge monsters that would possess me. You know, I'd be galumphing along very holy and clear and light, and along would come one of my neuroses. You know like lust. I'd hear myself, I mean the most hard, I'd hear myself saying, wouldn't you like to come up and see my holy pictures? <laughs> but then over time, through all these practices, not that I got rid of my neuroses, but they, I changed who I was in relation to them. So the neuroses became like these little schmooze. That, hello, I haven't seen you in weeks. Come in and have tea. <laughs> They're like your old friends because you've been so intimately involved with your neuroses, haven't you? Didn't you think they were real and you were real in them and all? And then you awake and you see it's just the neurosis. And now I just think of my neuroses as my style. So you look at me and you see these levels, 
And then you look once more, just turn the dial once more, and what you see is a fellow soul sitting here, just like you, saying to you, isn't it interesting? Isn't this an interesting trip? How are you enjoying it? And you see yourself as fellow souls who have met to say, well, what's it like being, with the, what's the incarnation like? How are you doing with it? Can you hear this? Can you, you know, is this too, too, I look at some of you going like that, I assume. <laughs> some of you going like that. Half of the audience thinks the other is psychotic. It's interesting, <laughs> interesting predicament to find myself in. <laughs> see, I, what I see is that I don't really know there's a, what happens after death. I mean, I have lots of models. I mean, I've co-authored a book around the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So, I mean, I've got lots of models from many different traditions about what happens after death. But to me, they're all conceptual models trying to define or bring back something of something that is not conceptual. That is not something that the thinking mind particularly can embrace. So what I see after death is, is a mystery. And then I look at suffering and the thing that any model I have in my mind of justice is offended by the suffering that exists. And then I realize that why that suffering exists is to me still a mystery. And then I ask how I would like to be with a mystery. How do you live with a mystery? How do you live with not knowing? And I realized this a lot in, in playing with Timothy Leary over the years and he died and I did a lot of eulogies and so I had a chance to really reflect about it. And I realized that one of the ways that he and I delighted with each other in what roles were those of fellow adventurers playing at the edge of the mystery. It's what scientists feel. It's what artists feel. It's what humans often feel in almost everything they do when they're really awakened enough. Because you see that moment by moment life is the edge of the mystery. And your mind is constantly saying, there's no mystery here. I understand it. I'm now doing the dishes. That's what I'm doing. And reducing it through your mind so you've taken all the mystery out of it to make yourself feel safe. But the fun is, if you, there used to be an old radio show called I Love a Mystery. And what I would say is that what I'm finding is that the way in which we approach our death is critical to the experience we have of life. And that if I were approaching my death, which I am, it's not like Bob Dole saying, if I were a senior citizen, <laughs> Bob Dull. <laughs> There's just a very funny image. I mean, I, to all of you that are Dolites, I this is all in fun. But he was asked. He was asked. Um, he was asked. Do you wear uh, briefs or shorts? Because Clinton had been asked that. And um, president and <laughs> presidential candidate Dole said, "Depends." <laughs> uh, 
Um, you and I live in a, um, what could be called a primarily scientific materialist philosophy. Whether we are individually, but the society in which we are, while it calls itself Judeo-Christian or whatever it calls itself, with some Islamic people in it, it basically the shopping malls are the temple. And you walk through them with eyes big as you look at the deities of, of incredible stuff to consume. And our, we have been so well trained as consumers, which is where the way those role identities are. You're a producer and consumer in a materialist world. That you really get off on consuming or anticipating consuming or being afraid of consuming or over consuming or whatever. Consuming is a big deal. And the predicament with scientific materialism is it really has a really hard time with death. Because death, from a true materialist point of view, is, quote, the end. And um, so, and then they're opposed by all these religious traditions in which somebody said, well, I was there and I come back and I'll tell you it's like this. And you have all the blind men and the elephant. All the different blind men, blind, per, blind persons went to see the elephant and they came back and they were having lunch talking about an elephant. One said it's very like a snake because they touched the tusk. And the, somebody else said it's very like a tree because they touched the leg. Somebody else like a wall because they touched the side of the elephant. And that's sort of what religions are. And what they do is promise you a belief in a model of reality afterwards. So what I realized now was that between those two places, when I looked at what had happened to me over these 35 years, I saw that I had a very deep, I don't know what word, I'll try faith. Not a faith in, but being in faith about the fact that there was a larger context in which I existed than the one that I could smell, taste, see, hear, touch, or think about. And that I didn't really understand it. And that who I thought I was really couldn't understand it. And for me to understand it, I would have to transform myself into being it. So I live my life every day within this larger context. It's like taking a frame and putting a bigger frame on a painting and more of the painting comes into view. I can out of the corner of my eye see that there is some inherent, like I look at suffering, like if I say to you, have you had a stage in your life when you were suffering, which might be now, or but some other in the past, most of you would go like that. And then I would say to you, well, I'll tell you what I have found, and I'm curious whether you found it too. As much as I hated that suffering, when I look at who I am now, I realize that that suffering was one of the root, root nurturance of my compassion. And I don't want to ever have that suffering again, and I don't want to lay it on anybody else. See, I won't say it's good for you, go suffer because I found it good. But I'll tell you that my suffering has turned out in some bizarre way to be grace in the sense of making me a, a more aware and compassionate and present human being. So I live with the mystery from, from moment to moment. And what the soul is, is because the soul is sort of an in-between being. It's like a, a step on a ladder that you're going to later throw away. What you do is you can use soul identity 
like you are somebody on another plane. Just like when you dreamt last night, you thought you were somebody else, didn't you? If you entered into your own dream, you probably didn't enter in just as who you are now. You entered in in some other way, and you woke up and you said, that's all a dream. And so is this one. And the question is, knowing it's a dream, that's like lucid dreaming, knowing it's a dream, can you continue to dream? And that's what the soul does. The soul appreciates that it's a dream, and the ego is in the dream. And if you push away the ego, what I found was if I cultivated that aversion to that dream, I was trapped. I was never going to be free. And to be free meant I had to passionately engage myself in all of this without fear. And at the same moment, and that was the balancing part of consciousness, live in the plane where I understood it was a dream. Leela, play, whatever you want to call it. And then once you have started to stabilize and establish yourself as soul awareness or your awareness through the identity of your soul and getting to be a soul is really not a big scary thing because you're still going to be a separate entity. You're still going to be, you, who you, you're going to be somebody. It's different, but you're somebody. But then the next stage is between soul and awareness. And it's like the final orgasm with the beloved. It's the final surrender of separateness. And to say to somebody that is busy being somebody in ego, well, what's required in the spiritual journey for you to be free is that you must die. <laughs> what is required is the surrender of your entire sense of separateness. You don't get many takers. <laughs> they say, just a minute, I'm planning to do it later. <laughs> it's a really nice idea, and I understand it theoretically. Now, just a minute, I have my, I haven't done my living will yet. So what the soul is, is an in-between territory you can hang out and feel safe as a somebody until the pull between that soul and the awareness that embraces it or the, the return to the mother, to the union, to the oneness, to the ah, oh, becomes so great. And all the poetry of Rumi and Hafiz and Kabir and all of the romantic poets and the, the, the songs in the Bible, I mean, all of those, those yearnings to be with the beloved, that becomes so powerful at that moment. Because what the soul is, is a being that can be with other beings in love. And it's not a relational dance. What are we, 10 minutes? Thank you. You all okay? Yeah. I'm a real schlock practitioner, by the way. I, I mean, you know, I eat chicken. I'm not bragging or complaining, I'm just noting. <laughs> it's my karma. It's whatever it is. But in that Dzogchen practice, what it says in effect is, Allowing for these different, I mean, what I've done is I've taken all the different planes of non-ordinary states of consciousness and all the multitude of planes, the chakras, the seven and the 14 and the three and the nine and the whatever you got from all the different systems. And I've said, look, what do I need of all this to do my journey? And I realized that I would, I would settle for the three, the ego, the soul and awareness. And awareness would cover my whole Buddhist commitment since I knew that was the root what is. 
And then on the way there, I would use my dualistic devotional practices of extricating myself from my ego into my soul. And as I came up from my ego into my soul, the release of not being trapped in these very tight identities with role, of coming up into just being this awareness, still separate, but just this awareness, aware of my body, aware of my life story, aware of everybody else, just aware. And you and I could meet and we could experience a quality of love that was not a relational love. It was, I mean, it's relational, but it wasn't a psychodynamic love. It wasn't, do you love me, I love you. It wasn't romantic love. It was a quality of what might be called conscious love or Christ love or whatever that quality is in which it was safe for us to love one another because the identities weren't made so complicated by I need, I want, I desire, I hope, I fear, which is all our ego storyline. So we could meet, are you there as a fellow soul? I'm here. Far out, isn't it? Interesting life, isn't it? I mean, I walk into a room with somebody that's dying of AIDS. Young person, dream shattered, family ostracizing, economic hardship, opportunistic illnesses, suffering, 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 suffering. It is such a powerful symbol, it's almost impossible for anybody in our society to walk in without reacting in some way to the symbolic identity of that person. And I walk in and I work on my consciousness and I keep quieting down because I have all the reactions everybody else has and I don't push them away but it's like and also and I just keep coming back into this other place where it's a fellow soul just like me and we've taken different incarnations and this one is ending this way and going through this process and I in effect am saying I don't say it I'm just sitting there making my consciousness an environment where if that person would like to come out and play I'm right here I have no moral right to define what that person should do. I don't know what their karmic predicament is. If you were, I, uh, you should die the way I think you should die. Nonsense. It's a mystery. Death is a mystery. The process of death. What I offer that person is my consciousness is present. Are you here? I'm here. And it's amazing that a person who has been suffering immensely and surrounded by people who were caught in the suffering and therefore were reacting to it, which was reinforcing its reality, suddenly the person was just waiting and comes right out. Yeah, I'm here. You know? Well, what's it like dying of AIDS? Well, I'll tell you, this is a drag and this is interesting and I can transmute this, but this one's got me. And I say, well, I'd suggest you try this, and how about that? And that would be interesting. And we meet right behind this incredibly seductive drama. And to, I'll tell you something, the highest work I do in my life, day by day, is being with dying people. Because it's the place where there's no bullshit needed, you can be right here, they got nothing to lose. And at that moment, people can open like flowers. It is incredible. It is such a gift. It just keeps me right at the edge of, my, of the mystery. And I would say to you, what I want to do is I want to approach a mystery. I have two minutes. I want to approach a mystery with clarity of mind. I want to approach a mystery with a sense of adventure. I want to approach a mystery with an appreciation and love for the mystery and the forms of the universe. And I would like to just be present at that moment, just like I'd like to be present. And the best preparation for the moment of death is this moment. And if you live this moment here, you watch people age and you will see the most fascinating thing. They go from this incredible plan for the future and then when they look at the future, all it's got is chronic pain, pills, doctors, and death. And then suddenly they leap into the past and they say, do you remember that wonderful time we had? And, and pretty soon they've got pictures and they've got grandchildren. It's all then. No, grandchildren is now, but stories of the grandchildren is then. 
And they go right over the present moment, which was their salvation. <laughs> it's so bizarre. It was the salvation. To bring the consciousness into this moment is the best preparation for death and to allow that this is the mystery, that this is the mystery, and establish that role of being a listener to the mystery. Play at the edge. Einstein said, if you don't cozy up to mystery, you're missing life. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> so I would say that understanding what you and I are doing on earth, we are here to awaken, to become free beings with heart open, with not caught in mind, in order to be instruments for the relief of the suffering of all of it of which we are a part. So there's nothing personal about it. When I'm with, some, with, uh, when I'm with suffering, I don't say it's his suffering or it's her suffering. It is our suffering. If you take it the next level, even beyond that one, it's my suffering. And then don't make it so personal that has too much of kind of messianic stuff. It's the suffering. And out of the suffering comes the response. If you've got a splinter in your finger, you pull it out with the other finger, and the first finger doesn't say to the second one, thank you. Because you know you're part of the same thing. And there was nothing personal. It was just the way of things. You and I have the capacity to bring two planes of consciousness to our lives. And you will see how sticky that plane of ego is as you start to pull yourself into soul awareness, not to deny ego, but to delight in it. To delight in aging, to delight in sickness, to delight in death, to turn the whole game around so that fire becomes water and water becomes fire. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the Omega Institute for Holistic Studies. Visit us on the web at www.eomega.org.